you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus and life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Um, so we are in the book of John this morning, John chapter 3, in the first 15 chapter, verses, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. I have uh, three sisters and a brother. My youngest, my brother, my only brother, he's 10 years younger than me, and I have one of the funniest stories about him, and he would be so happy that I'm about to share this right now. When he was seven or eight years old, so I was 17, 18, just a new believer, because I came to faith when I was 17, junior in high school, um, my wife and I, my wife now, um, she and I were just starting to get to know each other and eventually dating, and uh, she came over to my house to watch the Super Bowl party, or Super Bowl between the Packers and the Broncos, and my family always threw big, big parties for Super Bowl events, and at this time, my brother... I had a crush on my now wife, which he loves when I tell this story. And he was just following her all over the place. And we had TVs in multiple rooms and just, you know, the whole nine yards. And so we were, uh, me and some friends, including my wife, went off to uh, my my room where there was a TV in there, eating food, watching the game. And then my little brother comes in and he shuts the door and then he turns off the light Right? It's, it's dark out by this time. So he turns off the light. We're like, Jacob, what are you doing? He goes, I can see better in the dark. <laughs> it's because he was coming after my wife in a very creepy sort of fashion. And, and we died laughing. I mean, we died laughing. It was, it was perfect comedic timing. Honestly, there are some of us today who think or live in the dark thinking or convincing ourselves that we can see just fine. Yeah, I'm good. I see way better in the dark. And this is a story about... This is a scene that is in the dark, if you will. Nicodemus is going to come onto the scene. This is going to be the first of a few times we see him. And this time is going to be at night, in the dark. But John, the gospel writer, doesn't just use the word night in necessarily a literal fashion. He uses it most often through his gospel in a metaphorical fashion, talking about really a spiritual darkness that's going on. Nicodemus is going to come to Jesus in the night, this respected man, this religious man, this man who knows his Bible through and through, has memorized the Torah. This guy is going to come to Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the light of the world, And he's doing so spiritually blind. Completely blinded. Blinded by the light, if you will. Can't see Jesus for anything except just another man. To Jesus, or to Nicodemus, Jesus is just dim or out of focus. The lights are turned off. But Jesus is going to share with him that there needs to be something significant that happens in his life more namely, more specifically, in his heart, so that he can rightly see. In other words, God is going to have to do something to turn the light switch on so that Nicodemus isn't confused and thinking that he sees better in the dark. And so he needs, he needs more than eyes. He needs more than ears. He needs a new heart. And he needs to be born again. And he needs to be born Unto the kingdom of God. And that is the main thrust of what we're seeing in these first 15 verses. Is that we must be born unto the kingdom of God. And so we'll see that in a couple ways. In verses 1 through 8, we'll see that to be born again is to see and enter into the kingdom of God. To be born again is to uh, see and enter into the kingdom of God. In verses 9 through 15, to be born again is to believe the kingdom of God. To be born again is to believe the kingdom of God. So we're dealing with three words. Seeing, entering, believing. Seeing, entering, believing. So in the first eight verses, 
born again to see and enter the kingdom of God. What I'm going to do here is I'm going to read the whole passage and then I'm going to just walk through these verses with you. So let me read verses 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I have, if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's God's word. So there's this man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. He's a Pharisee. He's a, the ultimate conservative Jew, very conservative in his Beliefs, he was a distinguished teacher. Right? He stood out. He, was, he had his PhD in Judaism, in theology, and he was a ruler, meaning he was a part of the Jewish elite. He was a part of the Sanhedrin. In this time, as far as government is concerned, you had Rome who ruled, right? And then in this area of the world, you then had uh, a governor, Pontius Pilate. And under Pontius Pilate's rule, he allowed the Jews to kind of have their own structure of government and ruling and judging things. And this was the makeup of the Sanhedrin, which consisted of about 70 to 72 um, men, Jewish men, who then ruled over the Jews in that way, directing them in terms of worship and even judgment. We see this in the crucifixion, that the Sanhedrin essentially is leading the charge to have Jesus crucified. So here comes Nicodemus, right? He's a Jew of Jews. He is the cream of the crop. He is a top-notch man. And so he comes to Jesus by night. And as I mentioned earlier, it's possible that he came to him at night. Uh, There's a lot of opinions as to why he would come to it at night. Like maybe he was secretly going to Jesus because he was afraid. Well, we don't see that. And honestly, when we see Nicodemus later on, he's not exactly this very shy personality. He's not necessarily afraid of who he is and what's going on. It's very possible that Nicodemus didn't really approach him in the night. But John is using this as he does throughout the whole gospel of explaining something more metaphorically. That Nicodemus is really spiritually in the dark. But that's the point of what we see through John's gospel. We'll see scenes that are in the daytime. We'll see scenes that are in the nighttime. And John points that out explicitly. So here comes Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said to him, Rabbi. He approaches Jesus with humility, with with honor, with respect. Here is this distinguished teacher in all Israel. And he's approaching Jesus in this way, calling him Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. We've seen these signs. No one can do those signs unless they come from God. If you pick up on this language, Nicodemus says we. Well, is there anyone else there? 
I mean, are we talking about a group of disciples that are following Nicodemus? What's going on? Well, we don't know that. We also don't know that he was sent on behalf of the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees to ask Jesus these questions. But what you can see is possibly there's a little bit of a little bit of pomp here. You know, he's kind of hiding behind the fact that he's hiding behind the Sanhedrin. He's hiding behind this. You know, we know these things. We know what's going on here. And then he switches to the first person singular, I. So he starts in the we, but continues on in the I. And so these signs, these signs, we saw them in the last chapter, at the end of the chapter, when Jesus began to perform signs before the people. And then it said that he did not entrust himself to the people because he knew what was in the people's hearts. So these must be the signs that Nicodemus is talking about. There's multiple signs that are taking place. And so Nicodemus asked this question to Jesus, or he makes this statement, and essentially what Nicodemus is asking is, who are you? And more specifically, is, I see these signs, we see these signs, And these signs are telling of something that only comes from God, in particular, to the kingdom of God. Only God can do this. Right? When we saw Jesus clearing out the temple, the Jews didn't rebuke him. Right? They're looking at him clearing out the temple outer courts. God isn't striking him down. Jesus is still alive, and he's speaking with ultimate authority. So they're wanting wanting to know, who are you? And it's the same sort of mentality. Only someone from God can do signs like this. And that's why Jesus responds the way that he does. Verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, no one, uh, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Without that understanding, it almost seems like Nicodemus asked one question and Jesus just kind of like answered a different one. Right? You did these signs, but you got to be born again. What? But it seems that it would make more sense that Nicodemus is seeing this in light of his theology from the Old Testament that the one who comes from God is doing these things and the kingdom of God is near. And so Jesus is saying, amen, amen, truly, truly. What I'm about to tell you is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so he speaks. Nicodemus, you think you're seeing things? You can't even see it, even though it's right before your eyes. You think you're seeing the kingdom of God? You can't see the kingdom of God. And why? Because you must be born again. And so in the, in the world of Nicodemus, the idea of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament would be more understood in the realms of the end times, of when the Messiah would come and completely take over, right? And everybody is worshiping the Messiah. But the problem is that Nicodemus' theology doesn't answer the question, how do we enter into that kingdom? Like Nicodemus is thinking, yeah, it's coming one day, But he's already assuming that by his bloodline, by the fact that he's Jewish, by the fact that he's upholding the law, by the fact that he's got all these things for him, he doesn't need anything else to get into the kingdom of God. All he's doing is waiting for the Messiah to come. But Jesus is essentially saying, your heart's not right. You're spiritually blind. The lights are off. You must be born again. And so Nicodemus says to him, as any logical human being would. So do I have to do this Benjamin Button thing and like shrink down and become a baby and go back into mom's womb? (laughs) And it's humorous, right? It's funny. But it only illuminates the reality that Nicodemus is not seeing and understanding. He's not getting it. He's missing it. The distinguished teacher of all Israel is not understanding this theology. And so, Jesus answered, truly, truly, right? So listen again. (laughs) I say to you, like, pay attention. Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, we're in verse 5. Okay? So, 
the question is, what is Jesus meaning? Born of water and spirit. My understanding for so long has been this distinguishing between a natural birth and a spiritual birth. I didn't really know. I hadn't spent a whole lot of time studying this. But we come to find out that this isn't what he's talking about. This isn't the way that John writes. This isn't the the theology behind this, that you must, A, be a human being, and then, B, be born again by the Spirit. But rather, this goes back into the Old Testament. And this makes sense, and I'm about to get us there, Because later on, Jesus is about to very kindly and subtly rebuke Nicodemus for not understanding his theology. And so he's about to take Nicodemus to task, or at least bring him to the Bible that he knows, so that he understands what it is that Jesus is talking about. So I'm going to take you to the Old Testament here, Jesus is saying, and hopefully this will open your eyes. You see this allusion more specifically in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. I'll give you the highlights of this, but I ask you to read it on your own. Ezekiel 36. God is promising to essentially create a new covenant with His people. That He's going to cleanse them with water. He's like water washing over the soul. He's going to wash them clean like Baptism is a representation of our sins being washed away. So God is saying, I must wash you clean and I will need to give you a new heart. A new heart. This is the idea of being born again of both water and spirit. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's pulling in this theology of the Old Testament that Nicodemus should be aware of. It's never been about works. It's never been about obey the law enough and then you're good with God. It's always been about, I must give you a new heart, a circumcised heart. We're talking very simple, basic, straightforward Old Testament theology. And yet, somehow, over the generations, that has been missed and not seen, even to the point where the cream of the crop Jew, like Nicodemus, is not even understanding it. His eyes are blinded. And so if you're not born again, if you're not washed clean by God, if your heart is not made new, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And notice... Jesus said before in the first truly, truly, that you cannot see the kingdom of God. And now he says the word, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. It's not as though what he's about to, or what he is saying as far as being born again, like there's two steps. Well, there comes a step where you can see the kingdom. And then, then there comes a step where you can enter into the kingdom. No, Jesus is saying, seeing and entering are one. Like the water and the spirit being one. When you see the kingdom, you're in the kingdom. And there is no one and not the other. And so Jesus is making that point very clear. Nicodemus is in the dark. He can't even see the kingdom. Therefore, he's not even in the kingdom, though he thinks he is because of who he is as a Jew. Verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is spirit, lowercase s. Born of the flesh being very simply meaning, you know, humans give birth to humans, right? Earthly things reproduce earthly things. He's not talking about sinful things like Paul does in his letters. But he's talking about very earthly, simple things, right? Things that you should understand on an earthly level. And so he says the same with the Spirit. Things that are born of the Spirit are Spirit. And here in this case, to be born again, is not something that can be accomplished on your own, Nicodemus. This has to be something that is done by the Spirit, capital S, Spirit of God. He's the one who has to wash your heart clean. He's the one who has to make you alive. He's the one, not you, Nicodemus. And that imagery, if you were to go back to Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones, right? That that illustrates the point perfectly. We are, Nicodemus is just nothing but a bag of dry bones. Dead. 
unable to see, unable to breathe, unable to do anything. And then God in His own power and in His own might, by His own Spirit, raises those bones and brings them back to life. That was a very weak snap. Like that was not a Ezekiel dry bones to life snap. But you understand the point. It would be very powerful. And this is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. God has to raise his people to life. You've been doing it wrong all along, Nicodemus. But let me explain it. Verse 7, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't marvel at this. Don't let this throw you off. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you know not where, from where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I'm going to refer to a quote from D.A. Carson on this. He says, The point is that the wind can be neither controlled nor understood by human beings. But that does not mean we cannot detect the wind's effects. So it is with the Spirit. We can neither control Him nor understand Him fully. But that does not mean we cannot witness His effects. Where the Spirit works, the effects are undeniable and unmistakable. This is conversion. This is being born again. Nobody can control this. This is outside the realm of human control. Right? This is why early on in chapter 1, that you be born again, not according to human will or human desire or effort, but by the will of God. It is God who makes people alive. Dead people alive. It is God who does this. We don't understand everything. We don't know when God is going to do it, necessarily how He's going to do it, in the, in the time He's going to do it. But when we see it happen, oh man, we know that it happened. That this is only an act of God. Have you ever been in a deep sleep and someone comes in the room and just, boom, throws on the lights, right? And just wakes you up. Your first reaction is probably something you'd have to repent for later on, right? But when someone comes in, turns on the lights, it just completely blinds you, right? And it takes, it's usually just like covers over the head, expletives, and then eventually the covers come down, right? But over time, over several minutes, the, the room becomes more in focus, Right? The light isn't so blinding. When, it, when our hearts are changed by the Spirit, by the Spirit of the living God, it is really the blinding glory of Jesus that comes into our darkened hearts. I mean, just, boom, illuminates us. And at first, it seems blinding, right? Whoa, this light is so bright. Whoa, oh my goodness, I never saw this before. And eventually, everything starts to come into focus. For Nicodemus, he's not seeing the light yet, but eventually he will. We'll see this in the book of John. Eventually that light will wake him up and his sight will come into focus and he'll begin to see the kingdom of God and namely at the foot of the cross. And so I want to use this time to give really a twofold reminder to all of us in the room. Because you are born again, because you're born again, you can now see and enter into the kingdom of God. You can now see and enter into the kingdom of God. You are the product of the kingdom of God coming to you. The first thing that Jesus does in Mark 1, after he's baptized, is he goes and he preaches the kingdom of God, that it is at hand. Because the kingdom of God, in the most simplest of definitions and summation, is that it is completely wrapped up in Christ. Completely in Christ. You and I can now see the kingdom. We're aware of the kingdom. We see when the kingdom works and changes in our lives, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships, and how we think about things. And so this gives us reason to rejoice. We need to be thankful. We need to be worshipful that now we can see. We were blind, but now we see. And the second thing is, 
unless the lost world is born again, they will continue to remain blind to what it is that you and I can clearly see. Let me say it again. The lost world, unless they are born again, will continue to remain blind to what it is that you and I can clearly see. There's a lot of things going on in the world right now. Right? A lot of things. If you, if you go and watch the news or see the actions of the government or those who support ungodly decisions or practices or opinions, you look at their philosophies or their ways of thinking, it could just drive you mad. I mean, I saw people, I voted this last week uh, for the school board and everything, and I watched the reactions of people, and man, it was visceral. It was nasty. It was not pretty. Not pretty at all. And it could have, like my blood was boiling at some things, but then I realized, we are dealing with lost people. Like no more lost than Nicodemus here. Like the light switch is off. They can't see the kingdom of God. They are walking in darkness going, oh, no, I'm good. I can see just fine. Very clearly. I understand where I'm going. No, you don't. It's kind of like the dog at my mother-in-law's house. It keep, it's going blind and it keeps running into the back door. There is a literal worn out space on the back door where this little head just keeps hitting the door. It is funny to watch and sad at the same time. We can laugh at this, just so you know. <laughs> like, that's what we're doing as the lost world. And before we even knew Christ, we're just walking blindly, just plowing in the doors, thinking, oh, that's nothing. What I want to propose is for us to take a position like Jesus. Jesus doesn't sweat the matter with Nicodemus. He doesn't get blue in the face. He doesn't get red in the face. He's not white knuckling. He's not like, man, I just want to knock this guy out. But Jesus rightly points Nicodemus to what is necessary for him to rightly see the world. Jesus understands that he's spiritually blind, that he's operating in the night, that he's in darkness. He can't see anything. He can't expect Nicodemus to understand the world in the same way that he understands the world because Nicodemus is blind. We cannot understand, or we can't make the world understand things the same way that we do. We can't get angry when lost people do what lost people do. I often think about, if I wasn't a believer, what I would be doing, I would be doing a lot of things that all of y'all would hate. And I wouldn't even care. Because... I would have lived under the mentality of you just live one time. I don't really care. I probably would have never voted. Like, doesn't matter. It's not going to affect me. I don't care. I'll be dead before the ne- before it actually affects this group of people. Right? I would have been all over the place. But I thank God that he has opened my eyes. And I know there are other men and women in this world operating in the same mindset. But that's only because they're blinded by their own sin. Their hearts have not been washed clean by the blood of Christ. So as ambassadors for Christ, you and I are a means. We are not the agent. You and I are a means by which God awakens the hearts of sinners. God works through us. We are a mouthpiece, if you will. God uses us to share the truth of the gospel with sinners. And then it is His Spirit, capital S, it is His Spirit that opens their eyes. And when their eyes are opened, we will see, we will recognize it, we will understand. All we are called to do is be faithful and obedient. Doesn't mean we sit on our hands, doesn't mean we don't do anything. Yes, we do and we act. But we don't have to get super stressed that the world is not listening. The world is never going to listen. The world won't listen to God. And before Christ, you didn't listen to Him. But we must rest in the power of God and the power of Spirit to change hearts and minds. And that should take a ton of pressure off of you. A ton of pressure off of you. What do you need to start adjusting 
about how you see and interact with the lost starting today? How do you need to start adjusting how you speak to them, how you see them, how you interact with them? Do you need to start having compassion, some patience, some mercy, perhaps like the Father has shown you in me? Do we need to stop seeing them as the enemies and perhaps see them as men and women who are made in the image and the likeness of God but are blinded by their sin and that we hope that they would see Jesus? If the gospel is the only thing that opens eyes, the Spirit of God is the only one who can open eyes and it's not you and me, then what needs to change in the content of our conversations with the lost world? Are we constantly trying to persuade them with words that are not God's words, with things that are not God's things or ways that are not God's ways? Are we trying to do it in our own power, in our own strength? Are we leaning on the Spirit of God Trusting the Spirit to take over in that way. And so Jesus, He was annoyed with, if you will. That's my version. He was annoyed with the people in chapter 2. He was performing the signs, and they just wanted more and more and more of the signs, and He did not entrust Himself to them. He didn't even bother to stick around even more and, and teach more, if you will. Not that we know of anyways. Maybe He did. But He didn't entrust Himself to them. But he decided to further the conversation with Nicodemus. He entrusted himself to Nicodemus, somebody who saw the signs. But he gets straight to the heart. Nicodemus, you can't see anything because you have not been born again. But I tell you, Nicodemus, you cannot even see or enter the kingdom of God unless you believe the Son of Man must be lifted up. And so we see in verses 9 through 15, being born again to believe the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus, carrying on in the conversation, says, well, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? You've got a PhD in theology. You have memorized the Torah. You are one of the Sanhedrin and you don't get this? I mean, it's kind of a little bit of a shot, a kind one, a little bit of a shot towards Nicodemus. But this further shows that what Nicodemus knew and what he practiced was not enough for him to be in the kingdom of God. Nicodemus now, instead of being offended, instead of going after Jesus and trying to plot his murder, if you will, like we often see the Jews in the New Testament... It's like he's all ears. It's kind of like it's the dawning of a new day. And that's really what we're going to see in the story of Nicodemus through the Gospel of John. Is that the sun begins to rise in Nicodemus's heart to where he fully sees Christ on the cross. And so it's the dawning of a new day. And so he's like, okay, I'm all ears. Jesus says, verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. It's kind of like a little shot back at his kind of a pompous presentation. Well, we see that you do all these signs and Jesus is like, well, we happen to know what we're talking about. (laughs) But he's gentle in it. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If you can't understand the ABCs of Christianity, let me put it plainly like that, then you're not going to understand the things of heaven. If you can't understand the elementary teaching of birth and when to be born again, you're not going to be able to handle the things of God, the things that happen in heaven. To be born again is an earthly matter, but it's done by one who resides in the heavens. right? And if you're not seeing this and understanding this, then how are you going to understand things that pertain only to the heavens? I think in this moment, I would kind of like to envision Nicodemus just kind of all his breath was just taken out. Here he is being told by Jesus 
that you don't even understand the Bible. You're not even getting it. You're not even born again. You actually don't understand the things of heaven. And for many people, that would be offensive and, and cause some anger or rage, but not for Nicodemus. It's like the, it's the dawning of a new day, right? Jesus further says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I like to think of that imagery in Daniel 7, that the Son of Man going up and ascending into or to the right hand of the power on high. Jesus begins to speak and he shows, in short, I can speak of heavenly things because I am the one with authority. I am the Son of Man. I come from heaven. I'm the one who has come down. And I can speak of these things truthfully. I know you understand the Bible, but you're not getting it. You're not seeing it. I can tell you the truth. So Jesus further says, He now brings Nicodemus back to the Old Testament Scriptures in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's such a strange sighting of an event in the Old Testament. I mean, this event is only spoken about for a handful of verses. It's not like there's this huge expounding of these verses in the Old Testament. It's just in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. That's, that's it. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. But Jesus is using it right here, and Nicodemus would be very familiar with it. It's scripture that he's memorized, so he would know. Let me give you the cliff notes of what happens in those verses. It's very plain. You can read it and you get it on your own. But the people of God become impatient with Moses. They become impatient with God. And again, they begin to complain. They begin to complain and and just be frustrated towards God. You know, why did you bring us out here? Complaints like that. So God sent venomous snakes among them to bite them, which is weird. And somewhat cool, just speaking as a dude, right? I'm just thinking, I'd like to see this in a movie. But he sends venomous snakes to bite them. Some die, but some don't, and they're just severely hurting, right? They have sores, they're bruised. But if they don't get help quickly, they're going to die from the poison that is flowing through their veins. And so then Moses, right? The people then come to Moses going, ah, we are so sorry, Please help us. Moses then prays to God. And God says, and he instructs Moses, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, on a staff, and lift it up. And if they look at the bronze snake, they'll be healed. This is why you see on ambulances, the staff and the snake twirling around. That's the same symbol. Here's the point. The bronze serpent became the means by which God would heal Israel. And the bronze serpent would have to be lifted up for them to see. God wasn't being this angry, mean God, just inflicting, right? The people of God were complaining and frustrated with him. And they just wanted to just file complaints against him and curse him and so forth. And God could have just opened the earth, swallowed him, closed it up and been done with it. And so essentially their own sin, their own disgust towards God in that moment, if you will, came back to bite them, pun intended. God could have left them to die in the wilderness. He could not have provided any sort of healing, but he did. This is the grace of God. I mean, remember, these people were enslaved to Egypt. Their children were being murdered. Harsh labor was upon them. The grace of God came upon the Israelites and Israel didn't even do anything to deserve the grace. He just brought it. And over and over again, these people that he rescued continued to file complaints against him and he continued to provide bread, meat, water, their clothing, their shoes never wore out for 40 years, right? We have to go through shoes like every 12 months, every three months for our kids, Right? We have to constantly go through these things all the time. But God shows His grace and His mercy, His favor upon His people. He's not the sinner in this story. 
And so, it's true for the Son of Man that He would become the means by which we would be healed. That He would have to be lifted up on a cross. And with that idea of being lifted up also comes with it the idea of exaltation. So John, in his wording here, what Jesus is saying, I must die, I must resurrect, and I must be exalted. So Jesus must be lifted up. So the gospel then comes, the kingdom comes to a world that is complaining and grieving God. And He comes to provide healing. If the picture couldn't be any more clear, Nicodemus, there is nothing you can do to enter or see the kingdom of God, to be born again in your own power and might. In fact, you're just like the complaining, grieving Israelites of the Old Testament. I must be lifted up for you. What do you require of me then? Believe. Just belief. That's what he says in verse 15. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here's the prerequisite. Be a sinner. And here's the work. Jesus does it all for us. And we believe in it. And it is attributed to us. We are the sinners. We are the one cursing God. We are the one against God. And it is God in His grace and mercy says, I must come and die for you so that your hearts would be healed, so that they would be made new, so that you would be regenerated into a whole new person, transformed into a whole new being. And this is the determined purpose. There is no other way that you can be born again unless you believe in the Son of Man. Unless you believe in Jesus who will be lifted up on the cross. Unless the Spirit of God comes after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Only then can your heart be changed. Nicodemus, his heart cannot be changed because Jesus has not yet died, has not yet resurrected, and his spirit has not yet been poured out. But Jesus is saying, this is the dawn of a new day. The sun is coming. The spirit is coming. You will wake up one day. You will be able to see. You will be able to enter into the kingdom of God. And your sins will be forgiven forever. You will have eternal life. And I have to do this For you. I can't get your permission to do it. I can't ask you to help me in doing it. I just have to do it on your behalf. You and I, church, are no different than the complaining and bickering Israel in the time of Moses. We have sinned. We complain about God's provisions. God, why'd you give us a church building that leaks water? We complain. We puff up our chest like we deserve something better. More blessing. But God, seeing that we thought we were better than Him, He could have left us dead in our sins. You know what? You think you're bigger and better? You think you can do this on your own? Fine. Do it on your own. See what happens. He didn't do that. He looked at our blistered, and boiled souls. Contagious with the most deadly of viruses. He approached, unmasked if you will, he approached open-handed, full of compassion, offering to us ultimately a vaccine that would cure our hearts of the vile and decay that our hearts had become. Jesus became our sin so that we would become his righteousness man that's grace that's mercy we didn't do anything we're no more or no less sinful than nicodemus here nicodemus is no more righteous than we are just because of who he is without the spirit of god changing our hearts or being born again we're all equally dead in our sins That truth should cause us to have revival, revival in our hearts and our souls. There's so many we know 
outside of this room, maybe even in this room, who are dead in their sins, and instead of looking up to the cross, instead of looking up to Jesus, they are running hard in the darkness, not seeing where they're going, yet they are convinced that they know the way. There are so many who are grasping for hope, grasping for life, for the cure of pain and suffering in this life, and all they're doing is looking down at their own hands and looking down at their own feet, thinking, I, if I just try harder, if I just... If I just stop making all these horrible decisions, if I can just keep going, then surely we can find a way. But we have to understand, that's not going to work. That's not going to eternally heal. That's not going to eternally cure. We have to call our lost friends, our lost neighbors, to stop looking down and to start looking up to the cross of Christ. Stop looking to these other means as a way of living. They are unsatisfactory. Stop looking to your own kingdom. Stop trying to build your own utopia. It's not going to help. There's only one kingdom that is satisfactory. And there's only one kingdom that is unshakable and will last forever. You must look to Christ. And it is no more basic of an understanding than this. Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Not believe that Jesus existed like Nicodemus could see face to face, but believe that Jesus is the Son of Man. That He came to die for sins. That He was raised up for sinners. That He died. He was buried. That He rose again from the grave. And that He pours out His Spirit upon those who would put their faith in Him, who would repent and turn from their sins. And He would give us life forevermore. I've got nothing against apologetics or archaeology. I think those things are great tools for the faith. But any good apologist, like we have here, or archaeologist, we have none of those, (laughs) they know that true hope is not found in those findings or those arguments or the intellect, or logic. But it is found in the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit who changes hearts. The Spirit who changes us to want to repent of our sin, to turn to Him by faith. Not the signs and the wonders. Not the archaeological diggings. Not the crafty arguments. But it is the Spirit of God. And I tell you this. Because if you're in this room this morning thinking, man, I don't have what it takes. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough information. I don't have, uh, you know, I don't have enough of the signs of what God has done in my life to show anybody. That's not what it is. You have the very fundamental basics of what you need to share the gospel. You see and know the kingdom of God because you believe in Jesus. All you need to do is open your mouth and call people to believe in Jesus. That He's the only hope. That He's the only way. Who cares what their arguments are? Who cares what they say their findings are? Who cares if, they, if you feel like they can run circles around you intellectually? Who cares? It doesn't even matter. What they need is a heart change. They are dead in their sins. And you see that. And that makes you so much wiser than the world. And so the kingdom of God is not a matter of the signs, but a matter of belief in the Son of Man. And that is the elementary belief. Believe in Jesus and you'll have eternal life. Believe in Jesus and you will see and enter the kingdom of God. In all the humor of my brother 21 years ago, that was 21 years ago, it serves a better theological point. We really can't see better in the dark even though we try to convince ourselves otherwise. My wife, who just entered the room, she's like, oh, I know what story you told. (laughs) I had a conversation with a pastor friend who spoke of a godly couple and that he had pastored for a long time, known for a long time. They are um, much older and they are declining in their health. And the older gentleman has a degenerative disease in his eyes. He's going blind. He can only see out of his peripheral. And, but everything in front of him is kind of shadowy, a little bit blurry. But his wife, at the same time, is suffering from dementia. So they got to a point where they're still living in their home where they had to drive and go do things, and, and she couldn't legally drive anymore because of that. 
he really shouldn't have been legally driving. But he would drive, she would sit in the passenger seat, (laughs) and she would tell him when to stop and when to go (laughs) as he was driving. Did this for two years in our city, just so you know. (laughs) Never got in a wreck, but they worked together as a team, right? I ended up meeting this man and woman and got to sit across from them and hear their heart. They reached out to me, actually, because they knew we were doing work in the inner city and had a heart to see the lost in this community come to know Jesus. But here's the thing. Though this man was losing his sight, he could see clearly. And though his wife is literally losing her mind, she knows and understands with certainty. This husband and wife, as declining as their health may be, they can see and they can understand the kingdom of God because they have been born again by the living Spirit of God. They can see more clearly than Nicodemus. They understand more clearly than Nicodemus. And they are simple people. Church, the prerequisite for John 3.16, which we're going to get into next week, right? The infamous 3.16, the for God so loved the world, is this. That you see and understand that God is not impressed with you. He's not impressed with me. He's not impressed with the world. He's not impressed going, man, wow. Wow, look at you. You're just as smart and theologically inclined as Nicodemus. Man, you've accomplished so much. Thank you for attending church every week. Thank you for giving every week. No, that's not the prerequisite to John 3.16. It's that you and I are so blind, so dead in our sins, so helpless and without hope in the world That it would take the immense love of God to open our eyes, to cleanse our hearts, to see that Jesus is the Savior of the world. So today, we must go with gratitude and praise to the light of the world. As the light of the world, penetrating the darkness, pushing back darkness, celebrating that Jesus has made us alive so that we might believe see and enter into the eternal kingdom of God.